International Lunar Decade and Water Skiing on Titan, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's Travel Show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. Cassini has finally discovered the Titan Lake District. No, not water. Bodies of liquid methane or ethane, as much as 75 kilometers wide, on Saturn's big moon. We'll talk about them with JPL's Rosalie Lopez. First, though, a quick debriefing with the Planetary Society's Executive Director, Lou Friedman. Lou and Bill Nye the Science Guy have just returned from China. You'll hear about their trip and the Society's proposal for a decade of international study of our own moon. And eventually, we'll pay another visit to Bruce Betts for this week's What's Up, including a new space trivia contest. As the first of you hear this week's show, Space Shuttle Atlantis may be slowly rolling out to the pad. The launch window opens August 27 for a mission to, where else, the International Space Station. This will be the first flight for Atlantis in nearly four years. Attention amateur astronomers, want to save the world? Then you'll want to get a Shoemaker Near-Earth Object Grant application. Past recipients have been awarded more than $150,000 by the Planetary Society. The funds have enabled Skywatchers to upgrade their equipment, the better to find those asteroids and comets whose orbits take them uncomfortably close to Earth. The deadline is October 18. Details are on the web at planetary.org. This is the time each week when I introduce Q&A with Emily Lakdawalla, and that's just what I'm going to do after letting you know about some news of a more personal nature. By the time you hear this, Emily may have become a mom. Not surprisingly, she has begun a few weeks of maternity leave from the Society. Till she returns, we'll carry on with some of her best Q&A segments from the past. We might have a couple of other surprises for you as well. Here's this week's Golden Oldie sent with advanced congratulations and best wishes to Mom, Dad, and Baby Lakdawalla. I'll be right back with Lou Friedman. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, During the Apollo missions, they captured cool film footage of the Saturn rocket stage separations. How is this footage captured? Some of the favorite images from the Apollo missions are video of the separation of the first and second stages of the Saturn V rocket, followed by ignition of the second stage rockets. These amazing images show the curving blue marble of Earth in the background. They were captured using 16mm motion cameras mounted on the forward end of the Saturn rocket's first stage. The cameras operated for less than 30 seconds as the rocket stages separated 80 kilometers above the Atlantic Ocean. After recording, the cameras were ejected from the rocket. They were enclosed in waterproof aluminum capsules equipped with para-balloons that slowed their descent and kept them afloat once they splashed down. After they fell into the ocean, radio beacons and dye markers helped the Air Force to locate them. Nowadays, capturing film of rocket launches doesn't require such heroic efforts. Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out more. It's hardly news when Lou Friedman gets on an airplane. As executive director of the Planetary Society, Lou is often on the road representing the Society's interests in space exploration worldwide. But this time, he was in the company of Bill Nye the Science Guy as he headed for a conference in Earth's most populous nation. 
While there, he presented a dramatic proposal for cooperative study of our nearest neighbor in space, the Moon. We spoke with him the day after his return to California. Lou, welcome back to both Planetary Radio and to the United States, uh, to which you have just returned from, uh, what is it, your third trip to China? That's right. It is my third trip, Matt. What were you doing over there this time, and why was Bill Nye along? Well, as always, I try to have multiple reasons to go someplace, and I am glad to be home. But uh, China was terrific, and there's a lot of energy out there in uh, all aspects of uh, their life, and especially in their uh, uh, burgeoning space program. Uh, I was there for three reasons. One was the uh, COSPAR meeting, the Committee on Space Research, as a uh, large meeting of the world's space scientists which gather. Uh, Secondly, a meeting of the International Lunar Exploration Working Group, at which I presented uh, at both of these meetings the a concept that Wes Huntress and I have developed called the International Lunar Decade, and we're proposing an International Lunar Decade be established uh, both to help coordinate missions, or a lot of different missions that are going to the moon, and also uh, the world science interest in lunar uh, activities, uh, giving scientists a chance globally to participate. And then the third reason I was over there is really to make contacts, additional contacts, follow-up contacts with uh, Chinese space officials to uh, look for cooperative relationships that the Planetary Society can pioneer as they now become a um, a space-faring nation. We should mention Wes Huntress, president of the Society, Bill Nye, the science guy, vice president of the Planetary Society. Of course, you're the executive director, as we mentioned. Uh, How was the reception over there, particularly to this concept from you and Wes, for an international lunar decade? It was very well received, and it was endorsed by the International Lunar Exploration Working Group, uh, and uh, I would say that we got a lot of positive comments on it. Uh, One other aspect of the trip, uh, which I need to tell you about, is Bill Nye was uh, with me, and uh, uh, we had had some previous contacts with the Beijing Planetarium and arranged a public talk for him there. And Bill and I went down to the planetarium, and Bill gave a very nice talk, uh, translated, of course, into Chinese. Uh, Lots of kids were present, and there was a great interest. Uh, There are more similarities around the world, and there are differences if we can only capitalize on them. And I think uh, popular outreach about space exploration in China is something that we can uh, help foster. Are you telling me that uh, uh, Bill Nye's uh, renown among young people extends to uh, Chinese youth? Well, no, he was not uh, known in that area. We had to uh, sort of explain who he was, but then I think as soon as Bill begins talking, uh, people <laughs> realize uh, who he is and what he's uh, what he's trying to do, and he, he uh, got uh, rapport with, with the people very quickly. Tell us more about this uh, concept for the International Lunar Decade and, and why this may be a particularly good time to suggest this. Well, next year, China and Japan are uh, beginning moon exploration uh, with with their lunar orbiters. The following year, India and the United States plan to launch missions to the moon. Uh, I should have mentioned uh, Europe has a mission there right now, which is going to impact the moon on uh, September 2nd. Uh, so moon exploration is beginning again. Furthermore, the United States wants to uh, go there with humans, and uh, now we hear that Russia may be going back to the moon as well. So there's a whole aspect of international participation by national agencies going to the moon, and there does need to be some effort uh, if this 
if this isn't all going to be duplicated and if this is not going to all be disjointed, there does need to be an effort to coordinate it and to help facilitate communications as well as to encourage scientists. And just like the International Geophysical Year stimulated Antarctic research and actually led to the space age with Earth observations, international polar years have provided a great impetus to Earth-observing satellites and to climate studies, uh, we hope that the International Lunar Decade, uh, which might begin in 2007 and, and extend maybe even a little longer than a decade, uh, I said 2019, to hopefully get the next human landing on the moon, but to have a uh, this lunar decade might stimulate the scientific participation around the world in, uh, in these missions and in uh, the Earth-based studies uh, that go along with them. How does suggesting something like this fit into uh, the mission of the Planetary Society? As you know, our job is to inspire the people of Earth to explore new worlds, and getting more people involved uh, around the world is part of our mission. Uh, that, in fact, that's one of the things the society can do uniquely, because we don't feel we're a national organization beholden to any uh, political government uh, activity. We like to think of ourselves as a global organization working for people everywhere, and uh, I think this is something that uh, we're free to do and also free to uh, advocate in the different fora the uh, scientific organizations, the international professional organizations, the U.N. Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, and then the national space agencies, NASA, the European Space Agency, the Russian Space Agency, the Chinese Space Agency, etc. Let's close with a little bit a little bit more about China now. Since you've been there three times, have you seen the uh, space exploration effort uh, evolve over those trips to mainland China? Well, I'm just getting to know it, man. What I am getting to see is more and more young people involved in it and more and more impact it's having on uh, on society generally. You see newspaper articles about it. I saw a couple of public lectures uh, held this time in which students were questioning why China was undertaking this program and what they wanted to get from it. Uh, so I do see not so much an evolution of space technology, that's normal, and in fact, uh, there's almost a sense of deja vu about some of the things the Chinese doing look like some of the things the Russians and Americans did uh, when they were starting their space program. But what I do see is a, a evolution of uh, the effect this is having in the, in the wider part of society and the more attention it's getting. Uh, and I think uh, one of the uh, professors over there who was explaining to the students why China was doing this had the answer best. It's just one of the things a country does is it has to develop, and they have to do it themselves. At the same time, they have to do it in partnership with a, on a world stage. Uh, so it's part of a developing nation's uh, activity, and that's uh, one of the things the moon does. It's a stepping stone into the solar system. It was that way for the United States and Russia. It's now that way for China, India, and Japan, and I think other countries as well will we'll be following. Just one other question, Lou. You got any tips for uh, getting over jet lag? <laughs> Actually, Matt, it's one of the... Uh, uh, yeah, my, my main way to get over jet lab is to come home and get one good night's sleep. That's all it ever takes me. Uh, I, I have it all the time when I'm uh, traveling, but when I come home, I immediately recover. So I'm completely recovered. <laughs> I'm envious. Well, thanks so much, Lou, for uh, talking to us for a few minutes, getting us, uh, giving us this report. Thank you. Lou Friedman is the executive director of the Planetary Society. Don't go away. We're not done. Right after this break, we'll be back with Rosalie Lopez to talk about those lakes on Saturn's moon Titan. 
This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. We didn't just build it. We attempted to put that first solar sail in orbit, and we're going to try again. You can read about all our exciting projects and get the latest space exploration news in-depth at the Society's exciting and informative website, planetary.org. You can also preview our full-color magazine, The Planetary Report. It's just one of our many member benefits. Want to learn more? Call us at 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Cassini has done it again. The big Saturn orbiter once more passed close to cloud-shrouded Titan, the moon visited by the Huygens lander. This time, the radar instrument hit the jackpot, lakes. Liquid lakes, lots of them, in Titan's northern hemisphere. Up till now, scientists had to settle for just one questionable image of a lake-like body down south. Before she left on maternity leave, Emily Lakdawalla prepared a great article about this find. You'll find it at planetary.org, along with spectacular pictures. We thought we'd get a quick overview from our friend Rosalie Lopez of the Jet Propulsion Lab near Pasadena, California. The volcanologist is a group supervisor of geophysics and geosciences at the lab and analyzes the radar images returned by Cassini. Rosalie, welcome back to Planetary Radio, and congratulations on uh, this wonderful discovery that you and the radar team have made on Titan. Thank you so much. It's uh, great to be back talking to you all, and um, we have some really exciting discoveries on Titan. We had our closest yet flyby of Titan at an altitude of 950 kilometers, and we flew over the north polar regions of Titan and uh, finally found lakes on Titan. It was very exciting. Not just one lake, but, but I guess whole systems of what appear to be lakes? Yes, we're calling it the Lake District of Titan. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, several lakes, uh, some uh, uh, several tens of kilometers wide. The largest may be uh, as much as 75 kilometers across, maybe more. We don't see the whole of it. We find some smaller ones, some maybe two, three kilometers, but uh, there's a whole, there seems to be dozens of lakes. And uh, uh, on the next flyby, which is going to happen in October, we are going to go over part of this area again and, in fact, go further north, even closer to the North Pole. So uh, we're going to... Uh, see how far this lake district extends into the polar region. And I guess with that next opportunity, you've actually, uh, because of this discovery, you've changed the plans for where Cassini's radar instrument will be looking? Uh, that's right. We always have the option of radar because it's a side-looking radar. We can look left or we can look right. And uh, we actually changed the look uh, from uh, the, the Previous plan was at a, a lower latitude, but we got so excited by this discovery that um, uh, we decided to look further north and uh, see how far this uh, lake system uh, extends. So while Titan may challenge Minnesota for its title, uh, Land of 10,000 Lakes, uh, probably 
the recreational activities in Minnesota are safe from Titan. Nobody's going to be doing water sports there. Uh, I don't think so. It's uh, very, very cold. You certainly wouldn't catch me. I think even Minnesota <laughs> is too cold for me. <laughs> so, uh, and also the lakes are, we think, methane, uh, liquid methane or perhaps ethane. So it, it would be very, very, very weird uh, uh, water sports, <laughs> not water sports, liquid sports. <laughs> um, the, the places where you're finding these lakes, uh, apparently they are, there's some kind of depression. I guess there's even a possibility, must be very exciting to a volcanologist, to think that these, these could be, could be volcanic calderas? That's right, and that's what we are discussing uh, a lot in the team at the moment, the depressions where you find uh, at least some of these lakes uh, morphologically very similar to calderas on Earth and calderas on other planets. So this is really exciting. And for me, it's very exciting. I used to study lava lakes on Io. I still study them to some extent. And now it's methane lakes on Titan. So, uh, you know, maybe my fate is to study weird lakes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard another, this is a brand new term for me, uh, and I'm surprised I'd never heard of it, that, that, that these could also be something called, I, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but it's a Mars with an extra A. Yes, that's kind of like a, 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 a volcanic feature on, um, uh, like, soggy ground. There is a debate whether some of these volcanic features, if they are volcanic features, could have been formed by explosive volcanism, but the theoretical studies indicate that it would actually be hard to get big volcanic explosions on Titan because uh, the atmospheric pressure actually inhibits that, and we don't think there is a lot of methane as volatiles dissolved in the, quote, cryomagma. But we're still very much in the beginning of studying Titan and, and studying what the materials might be uh, that are forming the lakes, what the kind of cryomagma might be, and other possibilities that we might have. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it either, but like methane aquifers, so methanif methanifers maybe? <laughs> methanifers. Okay. Yeah, we, we're going to have to come up with a lot of new terms for Titan. That's always fun. I know that everybody was very hopeful that we would find exactly this kind of topography and lakes like this on Titan. All this may have surpassed anybody's hopes, but it took quite a while. Why Why did it take a couple of years? I mean, people were even hoping that Huygens would land in one of these. Yes, it seems that um, Titan doesn't have as many lakes as uh, we thought. Uh, in fact, in the old days, uh, after Voyager, the idea was that Titan might even have oceans because we need uh, the methane in Titan's atmosphere uh, is broken down by ultraviolet light, so something needs to be putting methane back into the atmosphere, and one easy way to do it is to have um, evaporation from lakes or oceans. So we were looking for the, uh, for the lakes, but had not uh, found them yet. Now, it was also postulated that they would be at higher latitudes where it's colder, and the imaging team found, in fact, one feature that really looks very much like a lake close to the South Pole. And now we found this whole load of them close to the North Pole. So it looks like the lakes are there, but it was not until we flew over the polar regions that we actually saw them. So you're very excited as you look forward to this uh, next uh, pass over uh, Saturn's moon. That's right. Yes, uh, come uh, uh, October we're going to have more uh, exciting radar data.
Well, we'll look forward to talking to you again then. And uh, you told me just before we started recording that, uh, not surprisingly, you're dividing your attention between the uh, cryo features like this and your next book, I.O. After Galileo. That's right. We, I'm uh, just doing the proof this weekend. It is a research-level book uh, that summarizes all we know about I.O. Uh, after the Galileo mission. Okay, Rosalie. Well, good luck with that, and uh, we do look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for joining us once again on the show. Thank you so much. Rosalie Lopez is a volcanologist and group supervisor in geophysics and planetary geosciences at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And as you've heard, she analyzes the radar images of Titan returned by the Cassini spacecraft. She's also the author of the Volcano Adventure Guide, and Volcanic Worlds, Exploring the Solar System's Volcanoes, both of which we've talked about on this show. We're going to do some exploring of the night sky with Bruce Betts in just a minute after this return visit from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. How do we capture video from launching rockets? There is now a private company called Ecliptic Enterprises that is making a profitable business from putting cameras on launch vehicles. Ecliptic's rocket cams have been mounted to Delta IIs, threes, and fours, to Atlas IIs, threes, and fives, on Spaceship One, and on the Space Shuttle tank and solid rocket boosters. The cameras are tiny, weighing less than 100 grams, and can radio color images and even sound directly back to Earth as the rocket lifts off or they can store the data for later download. The information that these cameras return as a routine part of space launches will be of incalculable value in diagnosing the causes of launch vehicle mishaps. They will also give human watchers the vicarious thrill of soaring into space. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. It's time for What's Up with Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. He's going to tell us about the night sky and uh, and our our interesting um, uh, contest that we uh, proposed two weeks ago, except that we didn't do it during the radio show, as we said last week. It was a super special, tricky trivia contest. It was a double secret trivia contest. (laughs) But people did uh, did find information on the website, so we do have some people, and we also will promise to give you a trivia question during the show. First... Let's talk about the sky, the planets. As I've mentioned, they're they're, they're running away. They're they're hiding these days. But uh, but Jupiter still lovely in the evening sky, brightest star-like object up there in the evening sky. You'll find it hanging out in the uh, southwest in the early evening. And uh, with a small telescope, as we mentioned, you can pick out uh, some of Jupiter's moons. You can also, in the pre-dawn skies, still pick out Venus quite easily, though it is getting kind of low over there in the east. And Mercury. Fleeting Mercury will be popping up above that pre-dawn horizon in the east and actually snuggling up with Venus within the next couple of weeks. So over the next two, you know, first couple of weeks of August, go out if you're in the, if you're up in the pre-dawn sky and uh, if you see Venus looking hugely bright, that thing just below it is Mercury. Uh, we also have the Perseid meteor shower peaking on August 12th, and it's fairly dispersed, so within a few days before or after that, will be increased meteor activity. It is a bad year in terms of the moon. It's got a nearly full moon, so a bright sky, but still, it's uh, it's traditionally the second best meteor shower of the year, and uh, has about 60 meteors per hour from a dark site if you didn't have the moon. 
but still can be fun. Go out there, stare up at the night sky, and relax. And look for streaks of light going across the sky. Some of them are going to be bright enough, right? Plenty bright enough oh, to yes, see, yes, even yes. with the moon out. Yes, definitely. If you're okay. patient, then you'll still pick up, you know, 10, 20 an hour, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, really, I'd plan it around a relaxing evening outside with uh, good friends. Uh, this week in space history, 45 years ago this week, a great and monumental first in space. 45 years. Okay. 45 years. 1961, German Titov becomes the first person to sleep in space. <laughs> Which is, and the first person to wake up with space head, <laughs> space air, space air. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's really important to us, the ability to sleep. So uh, <laughs> yes, both of us appreciate deal. that Absolutely. very much. On to random space. Oh, I like the little circus barker touch there. Oh, okay. thank you very much. That uh, wasn't it. <laughs> hey, in uh, th- we don't have an exact date for this. Otherwise, I'd do it in this week in space history, but. In 28 B.C., those active and writing down kind of Chinese astronomers provided the first recorded observation of sunspots. Oh, I never heard of that one. Kind of cool, huh? Yeah, very cool. Well, and, and cooler than the rest of the sun, too. Ah, <laughs> hence the reason they're dark. <laughs> okay, on to the trivia contest. We asked you, which planet has the lowest orbital eccentricity? In other words, which has the most circular orbit? What a range of answers we got. Okay, the most ambitious, but not a winner, was Barbara. Barbara Bethard. Barbara thought that we were extending this to all known planets. Yeah, my mistake. I, I, I mean, you know, if she'd been randomly selected, we would have had to, <laughs> had to, to go along with her. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of intended planets in the solar system. But yeah. There are I'm, those 150. 50, 60 out there. Well, and I got that, and most of the listeners got that, but Barbara really took that one step beyond. Yeah, and in yeah. fact, she came up with a bunch that have an eccentricity of zero, as far as we know. I don't know what our yeah, resolution I, is. Yeah, I'm not sure our, uh, our data resolution, our precision would be sufficient to make them winners over our solar system, but still, I admire the... The effort. Yeah, I'll even mention him. She she says uh, HD two one nine four four nine, but that's not nearly as dramatic as the actual answer, which most of our listeners got. There was some disagreement about this. The uh, winner this week, Mark Smith, not far from us, San Diego, California. He said, uh, and that's from the information he said you'll probably never use because Mark is a first time winner, although I think he has uh, entered many times. He said it's Venus, less than. Let's see, eccentricity of 0.007. Venus, very, very circular orbit. Congratulations, Mark. Congratulations, and uh, how about we give people another chance to win? They'd like that. They would? Okay. Well, in that case, it's time to play Where in the Solar System? (laughs) Have we played that before? (laughs) Not with that really cool title. (laughs) Oh, okay. But we've done it before. Okay, I want to play. I'm excited Remember, now. we've had exciting things like, where in the solar system is Uruk Sulcus? Oh, yes, Uruk Sulcus. Yes. But we did that one before. Mm-hmm. So now we are doing where in the solar system, or as I like to say it, where in the solar system is Hydra Otis Chaos. That's H-Y-D-R-A-O-T-E-S, Hydra Otis Chaos. Where would you find that in our solar system? Say it one or two more times. Hydra Otis Chaos. 
Hydra Otes Chaos. Hydra Otes Chaos. Uh, that's enough. Thank you. <laughs> Hydra Otes Chaos. Take me to your leader. And everybody go on to planetary.org slash radio and find out how to uh, send your information to us and compete for the glorious Planetary Radio t-shirt. And you need to get that to us by Monday, August 7 at 2 p.m. Pacific time. That's because that's where we live. So do that and we'll make sure that you are eligible for this next chance to win a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Maybe, you know, we should be more open and do it at a different time, like 5 p.m. Eastern time. No, the heck with that. Come on. We're pretty, we're pretty generous. We don't even tell them that they can only enter once. We oh. will let them enter as many times as they like, even if they've okay. won before. We're, we're nice, aren't we? We are. Yeah. Okay. Everybody go out there, look up the night sky and think about red. Thank you and good night. Red. Not my favorite color. Oh, wrong answer. <laughs> Blue. No, green. <laughs> Sorry. Ah, uh, well, this is not Monty Python. This is What's Up with the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. He's Bruce Betts. He's here every week for the aforementioned segment. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. We'll be back next week with another game of Cosmic Hide and Seek. We love hearing from you. Write to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. Have a great week, everyone.